Hello and welcome to another episode of Enviro Convos. I'm your host, Jacob, and today I am so excited to be talking to Dr. Matt Parnell. How are you going, Matt? I'm good, Jacob. And you? Oh, can't complain, can't complain. <laughs> it's another brilliant day. Yeah. Um, Matt, welcome to the podcast. I would love you to introduce yourself and uh, give the listeners a bit of an overview of uh, who you are and what you do. Okay. Um, well, Dr. Matthew Parnell. Um, I'm based in Melbourne uh, on Bunurong country, and I'd like to acknowledge the uh, um, elders and uh, traditional owners and uh, um, people past, present and emerging of the area that I'm living in. Um, I've come to sustainability and where I'm at in my practice over a long period of time. Um, I can draw a thread right back to the early 70s and uh, my very first attempt at public sort of speaking about sustainability was in 1973 I think um, when I was at school and gave a talk about solar energy and the future of solar energy and um, and we'd be crazy not to go down that road. Uh, this was at the height of the OPEC uh, oil crisis and uh, it seemed uh, a logical uh, thing uh, to aspire to and if I can say sort of now that I'm in my mid-60s I can say that I haven't changed from that position since I was 16 or 17 um, and I've, I've had an interest in uh, protection of the environment and moving to a sustainable world since I was a teenager basically. Um, so the challenge for me along the way has always been finding the vehicle um, to be aboard, to be able to push for a more sustainable world. And obviously going back, uh, you know, to the 70s, there weren't a lot of options. And uh, yet um, first job I did when I finished my building degree at New South Wales Uni in the 70s, I got a job on a solar energy research project. And that was looking at... Um, uh, using applying passive solar design principles to schools in New South Wales. And, and the work we did that year you know, helped um, uh, in the design of a school in southern Sydney that was designed with, you know, uh, passive solar heating and, uh, um, and so on, and climatic design and proper shading and all that kind of thing. So I've been at this a long time. Um, but finding those vehicles has always been the challenge. And I'm actually at that point um, in, in my career that I'm sort of at one of those sort of crossroads points again. Um, and I've had many of them. And those many crossroads have led to me jumping from one thing to another as opportunities come and go. Um, and now we're at the time where everyone's talking sustainability and climate change and everyone's jumping on board. Um, but my feelings are that while everyone gets on board, everything gets diluted uh, and solutions become simplistic and we all get caught up in um, trying to appear as though we're doing sustainability and we're forgetting about some of the core business of it. So that's probably my where I'm at at the moment, and that might open up sort of further 
things of dis of discussion. That's not a complete CV, uh, but I just thought if I start by going right back to the beginning and then try to draw a line to where I am now, it could be a good way to start. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good introduction. And and one thing that you you touched on is you know the the more that we you know more people get involved in sustainability, you kind of dilute the you know the issue. What in your opinion is it for a business or an individual you know i mean you, know, you looked at a lot of businesses so maybe that's a good place mm -hmm. to start is what would a business need to look like to be sustainable yeah really that's a really uh, key question um i'll approach that by saying you can collect data you can report you can say all sorts of things but if you're not fundamentally rethinking what you're doing, then you'll only go so far. And I see a lot of businesses want to be able to get aboard sustainability and climate change response, but they don't want to make those painful uh, changes uh, that will be needed to be made. And I'm concerned that a lot of businesses at the moment that are getting aboard sustainability um, yeah, they'll, they'll pick the low-hanging fruit pretty easily. And, and, and frankly, that low-hanging fruit of, you know, energy efficiency and, you know, eliminating toxic things and not sort of dumping your rubbish in the local river and all this kind of stuff. I mean, this is, this is something that, you know, all businesses should, should just automatically be ha uh, taking on board and not sort of screaming from the rooftops how wonderful they are by doing that. Um, I, my concerns are that a lot of businesses will only go so far and then they'll come up against the limits of um, what they've achieved with their current way of thinking and their current way of doing things. And so the next step is for them to rethink what they do. And that's where a, a lot of businesses put it all in the too hard basket. And, and by the same token, you know, local governments and organisations of all types, plus individuals as well. And so my concern is about uh, it, it's not the first 25% of improvement or in the second 25%. It's, it's the hard stuff that, that will determine whether we really do uh, meet our climate goals, whether we do clean up our ecosystems, whether we do, you know, the regeneration that we need to do. And that's where I... I think while a lot of people are looking at sort of, you know, uh, climate footprint reports and green star ratings and all those kinds of things, there's going to be a lot of work needed on the human system side of all of that. And that's where I think the main game will be um, over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Yeah. Cool. And uh, so who who drives that? Is it the the business that drives that? Is it you know, should it be pushed more by, by government um, and legislation? Yeah, who, who's the driver to make sure, you know, to get this change to happen? I think just without sort of sounding critical of, of that, but that's, that's the way people uh, look at it. You know, some people say the government should do this or business will do this or whatever. But from a systems point of view, um, it has to be multifaceted, the approaches to things. Um, it has to be individuals, both in their their uh, uh, personal lives plus those individuals in the positions they have in organizations and businesses and so forth so a lot of people are 
you know, doing lots of things at home, but when they go to work, you know, they accept that, uh, uh, you know, uh, things are going to be maybe not as good uh, when they're at work uh, when, it, when it comes to doing these things. So it's multifaceted. Um, businesses have a role, governments have a role, people have a role. Um, and uh, it, it's got to happen at the same time. Yeah, that, that, that makes complete sense. And I think one, one cool thing with sustainability and you're seeing it more and more and the movement's gaining pace is it is starting at grassroots and it's pushing its way up and businesses are, you know, noticing and, and slowly governments, you know, noticing and, and things are changing, but it, it really is, you know, the feet on the pavement, the people that are, are driving a lot of, a lot of change, which is, you know, exactly, you know, where it, it feels like as an individual, you can't do a lot, but yeah. the, the, the power comes to the people. Yeah. And, and, and on that, that point, Jacob, I th one thing that is very obvious to me now is um, there are a lot of young people um, or younger to mid-career professionals that are kind of coming into decision-making positions in governments, in businesses, and the because they've come uh, out of an, growing up and seeing how things are working, seeing the negative impacts of climate change and all this kind of stuff. And they find themselves in positions of authority and decision-making. And for many of them, there's not the argument about the need to do something. The, 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 the argument is always about how best to approach it. So that's, I think, one qualitative difference now compared to 5, 10 and 15 years ago is that you don't necessarily have to have the arguments, but there's inertia in systems to actually take the action. Whereas we've had decades, and we're still seeing it with our current government, that federal government, that we've had decades and decades of willful ignorance and outright resistance to any kind of change in this direction. And um, I don't think we have to have as many of those arguments uh, anymore. Um, those sort of arguments around the blockage of things doesn't necessarily mean the taking the action is is easier but it means that we don't have to go through years of trying to chip away at um, resistance uh, on things it gets down to how best and this is where sometimes the argument of how best can can also be a way where um, the outcomes that happen can be less than what they need to be uh, because people just aren't uh, willing to put the energy or even the courage into making um, the changes, but I think we a lot we we're not arguing as much. Um, it might not seem it when we look at the politics, but I don't think we're arguing as much about things as we used to. So I think that takes some of the friction out of the system, um, and and I think that demographic transition of, of the younger people coming into sort of decision making power is probably where the hope for the world actually is. Um, and, uh, you know, when I think about it, you know, so I'm in my mid-60s, but uh, I'm very conscious that um, when I was a teenager and a young adult, uh, to have um, a position in this meant you were constantly in conflict uh, with yeah. people. And, and that's very draining to be constantly in con conflict about something you believe in that is really... Um, 
super important. And uh, um, and now it's great to look back and see that there's people that don't have to have that level of conflict about things. Um, although I've got to say that I, you know, there was a couple of times in my, or a few times in my 30s and 40s where I sort of felt the messages weren't getting through to the sort of generation below. Um, but having been in education a lot over the last, you know, you know, uh, 30 years, I've probably spent sort of close to 20 years in one way or another in education around sustainability. Uh, there's always been, a, you know, that the younger generation going through university has always been receptive, always. It's just a question of where their opportunities have come. And I think there's a lot more opportunities. You know, the last 10 years has been a lot more opportunities. So that's where I see some of the hope. Um, yeah. That, that's that's a really a, a really good take. And I, I'd like to sort of push down that, the you know, the education of people. Is it, you know, this, the climate change is almost, you know, it, it's happening. It's happening so slowly and it's a grind and it's quite conceptual. And that's, you know, in itself part of the problem is that it's not visceral and real and people can't grab hold. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's where you're talking about, you know, doing the hard stuff. It, is that what you found a lot of the resistance is in the past is that this thing is just not tangible in the short term. It, it's a long-term slow thing that will eventuate. Yeah. Yeah. In interesting question. I think, I think one of the problems with, uh, you know, sustainability communication and climate change communication is that we're talking about the way we interact with uh, ecological systems has feedback loops. Now, some of the things that we do, it can be very, very obvious. So if someone comes and dumps a truckload of asbestos waste in your favourite swimming hole, um, then it's right in front of you. It can't be denied. The problem is there. But something like, you know, you know toxic chemicals getting into the environment or, you know, um, uh, carbon dioxide equivalents getting into the atmosphere the impact of that has taken a long time to build up. And so uh, you, and this is where I think people that have this capacity to see future impacts of their actions versus people that can't see that, um, it, it, it's kind of like a div two divergent worldviews. And one is people are sort of saying, got to watch out for this and this is a problem and that's a problem and people don't see them as a problem or the problem is so far off in the future uh, that, um, you know, uh, people have got a lot more to worry about. The thing, as I reflect on where I'm at, is that, um, you know, um, people talk about, oh, the future for our kids. Well, you know, my kids are in their mid-20s now. Uh, the, the future that I've been talking about, that, you know, the future for our kids, it's now. <laughs> for me, yeah. it's now. It's not another 10 or 20, you know, or 50 years into the future, it's now, and I've been in that now, frankly, for the last, you know, God knows how many years. So, it, but I do appreciate that people, um, whether the psychologists say, you know, people um, uh, are, are not good at um, making um, risk assessments of events that may or may not happen in the future. And I think yeah. that's just an inherent problem that we have people just um, put, put far more value on the problem that might happen tomorrow or next week uh, than one that might happen 
you know, five, 10 or 50 years into the future. And, mm. uh, and, and that's what one of the things that we're battling. I think it's a, a human trait and it's just something that we've had to constantly um, battle against. Yeah, and that also feeds back into, you know, like, like you said, the, the government policy has been very uh, stagnant for, for quite a long time. But the fact that, you know, you look at government cycles of three and four years, they're just not far enough, looking far enough into the future to mm. to want to tackle this on a, you know, it's a on a four-year cycle. Yeah, the yeah. impact is very low, but yeah. you need to look at a much greater scale. Yeah, the last few cycles have been particularly disappointing because, I mean, the thing thing I can say about all of this is that, um, and I think this is important for the hard yards ahead for people, um, is that I've I've seen multiple cycles of change towards better environmental performance and 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 so on. You know, um, uh, there was a big move because of the 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 oil problems in um, the 70s. That's what drove a lot of rethinking things. And it got us to a certain distance. And, and then, then the energy, uh, the people energy kind of faded out. And then, um, uh, you know, in the late 80s, there was a, you know, there was a big inqui federal inquiry into the forestry system and a, a number of other things. Plus, there was the Brundtland Commission that had a bit of an impact on people's thinking. So there's this other wave around the end of the 80s into the early 90s. There was a sort of much more awareness. There were more national parks being uh, designated throughout Australia. You know, we had, it was in the early 80s, the saving of the Franklin River. So there was some big environmental wins in the 1980s and, and into the 1990s. In New South Wales, for example, you know, uh, Bob Carr designated a whole heap of national parks um, and others that was mirrored in other states in Australia as well. So we, we've had successes. And then I think what happens is in the political cycle, there's only so much political energy uh, to make a change in that cycle. And then once that's happened, things drop off, particularly if there's a change of government to a party that's not uh, so proactive about that kind of thing. So, so we sort of saw a lot of those things drop off um, um, when John Howard got in and then took a while to pick up. Then we had a change of government. Then we probably had a wave that was uh, too big too soon in some ways, couldn't sustain itself. And, uh, you know, we got to the high point of the carbon tax and uh, a whole bunch of stuff around sustainability. And then uh, that fell off a cliff. So, you know, we had the Al Gore effect, the uh, inconvenient truth effect that sort of got people interested in doing something about climate change. But then the backlash happened. And, uh, and so all that opinion went went over a cliff from 80% wanting to do something to 45% or, or something roughly like that. So, uh, and now we've got another, you know, uh, I think um, with the, this post-COVID situation, I think we've got another round of energy because now those feedback loops are now short, you know, yep. bushfires. I mean, we've got some massive floods happening on this half of uh, the, the continent looks like happening over the next couple of days. Um, Todd, Todd River's flowing in, in Alice Springs, but there's going to be a massive amount of rain drop on southern Queensland and northern New South Wales. Um, 
as to whether that is within um, uh, long-term weather patterns or whether it's another example of what used to be sort of one in a hundred year floods happening every other year. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are recognizing that, uh, you know, we're getting the feedback in real time now. And, uh, and so there's some energy around at the moment to do things. And, uh, uh, and I think they're going to happen regardless over the next, uh, uh, well, this cycle in the next few years, but I think the urgency of, of taking action over the, over the rest of this decade is just going to be really strong. Yeah, that's that's well said. I'd like to pivot, and you know, you, you mentioned the en the energy, and that's where I'd like to pivot to is the the world is becoming more and more energy hungry. You know, we're moving into new technologies. Everything yeah. uses power. at At the moment you know, and our COVID recovery is looking at this gas powered COVID recovery um, with, you know, starting up big coal mines. Do you sort of like, you, you obviously see, see the problematic side of this. What sort of um, things should we be looking at as a solution to this? Mm. Yes. Um, I still think that there's no substitute for, uh, people rethinking their lifestyles and businesses rethinking what they do to to reduce their energy usage footprint first um, before going to re renewable energy. It's it's the it's the best way I can describe the problem is um, people that think if they plonk enough PVs on the roof of their building, then whatever energy sins they're committing underneath that roof don't matter anymore. Um, back when I was doing um, um, built environment sustainability consulting, I had a, uh, a client that um, uh, did this sort of major um, building project and didn't insulate it to meet building code. And, uh, um, and he had a real problem about how he was going to, you know, do it. And, uh, and, and so I came to try to help him out. And he he had a he put a 20 kilowatt PV system on the roof of his building. And he said, surely that's got a, you know, uh, offset stuff. Um, and I said, no, no, that's not how the building code energy efficiency works. You, because fundamentally, you've got to reduce your energy demands first and foremost. Um, because, you know, because you haven't done the right thing on the way you've designed your building, probably, you know, up to half of that PV system is just, um, you know, would have otherwise have been unnecessary. Or yeah. if you'd have done the efficiency work underneath it, that 50% uh, of your system could be going out to the grid and earning you some money and helping offset sort of something somewhere else. So it's, you know, we're in a situation where we could have um, this tendency to rely on the rollout of renewable energy plus carbon offsets and people might say well if that keeps going down in price maybe i don't need to insulate my building maybe i don't need to put in system controls on our production system etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's that'll be the fear and i think it's this is it's probably sort of a, a renewable energy version of the jeevan's paradox that um uh, is where people do a bit of energy efficiency and therefore think they can use a lot more energy 
uh, or they they don't have to be as disciplined about energy use anymore and they end up using more energy um uh you know in spite of their uh, energy efficiency sort of upgrades that they did mm. and i think that's a very real possibility if we're not careful that um you know with good offsets particularly like vast amounts of soil carbon that might just be used to offset sort of um uh coal mines and uh, gas fracking and that would be a very very poor use of renewable energy and uh good carbon offsets and um the only thing that might save us is that um this kind of behaviour might not be validated uh, as we go further and further down these climate change agreements, particularly um, if you know, uh, the European Union, for example, and other countries start putting carbon border tariffs on, they might say, yeah, you've got a ton of renewable energy, but geez, you've opened up four or five new coal mines and you've uh, tripled your area of fracking you know so they might say you're not really doing anything you know all that renewable energy you're doing is actually wasted uh, so we're going to bung the carbon tariff on you anyway and that'll that'll have an impact so there's i think it's a very volatile situation um, um that that's coming up in all of that don't know where it's going to go um but i certainly think energy efficiency underneath all these things is still fundamentally important and, and that energy efficiency has got to, I think, it's got to apply to things like, you know, are people going to choose to fly overseas three or four times a year for short holidays and stuff like that? Um, what, what are people doing that really we can't afford to have, have happen anymore? That'll be sort of another challenge we've got ahead of ourselves. Yeah, that's, that, that's a, like, I really like that take. And, and one thing that, it made me think of during like while you're speaking is that when you look at risk assessment, the first thing you want to do is avoid. If you can eliminate that risk, then you're, you know, you basically get rid of the risk. And as much as you can, if you can eliminate, you know, that your demand on energy, that's, that's where the biggest gains are. And that's, and that's yeah. like, I, yeah, that, that the way you explain that frame that very well in my mind. So I, I do appreciate that. That was uh, yeah, very well put and, and very well articulated. Well, look, you know, when I was doing consulting work and doing stuff with small to medium businesses, I could go into a business and make an ironclad case for them to change all their lights or to uh, upgrade their refrigeration or even just put a timer on their lights. And I could show the payback periods and all that kind of stuff. And then I'd, you know, see those people at some stage or walk past their shop or their business and just see that they haven't done anything that was recommended. And we we do, this is the thing that really bugs me about sometimes the attitudes of people in business is that it's kind of like, oh, make the case. Okay, many times you can make the case, but then they still don't act. So there's other barriers in people's heads around <coughs> doing these things that are not just because of a business case. Um, yep. Sometimes I think, oh, make the business case is actually a smokescreen uh, for not taking action. And it used to really bug me that I'd make these ironclad business cases on energy efficiency upgrades and stuff like that, and people would not act on them. Because yep. at the end of the day, you know, they just don't believe that they're that stupid, 
if I can be blunt, that they're that stupid that someone like me could come along and just say, hey, do this, do this, do that, and you'll save yourself $1,000 a year on your energy bill. They just don't believe that it's that simple and they just ignore it. Um, that was probably one of the most depressing things I learned from sort of doing energy efficiency work uh, there for a period of time. So, yeah. and that's what, that's what gets me to this complexity sort of view of things that I, I used to think that this kind of work, um, it's not rocket science, what's wrong with people? But it is actually rocket science. It is because anytime you ask people to make a change, you know, think of anything you want to change in your personal life, not energy, just even, you know, whether you're going to be nicer to your partner or you're going to lose weight or, or you're going to start to maybe go out and walk more or, you know, do less gaming or something like that. Um, it's hard to make those changes. And in sustainability, the changes we're asking people to make are actually quite cognitively demanding on people, even though a simple technological intervention might seem simple and straightforward to professionals. They are happening in the whole span of what people are caught up in, and that's where change is really, really hard. And that's why a systems approach to change is important. And treating people and their technology and their, you know, the things that they do, treating that as intersecting systems and they all influence each other, all these different systems we live and work and play in. And, uh, and so when we want to change one thing in one part of a system, it has ripples through all the different nested and intersecting systems that we uh, live and work in. And, uh, and that's where it does get uh, difficult. And any change program has got to be mindful of that. Pull a lever and get a result just doesn't cut it anymore. Um, and even with technology that's benign, you can still put um, uh, a PV system in the wrong place that can have all sorts of cascading problems. So, you know, it's still technology and technology is part of a human system. And, and, and there's always what people call unintended consequences of things that we do. And that's why we have to treat everything as a living system and... Uh, and try to change with that knowledge and understanding. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's really, that's really cool. cool. I like I like, I like that, that idea. idea. And, um, I just like to. Oh, I mean, we're running short on time. It's gone so quickly. Um, but I, I, I think we need to, you know, start shifting the question of like, you know, what does it cost to implement these things? To what's it going to cost to to not implement them? And that's yeah. and that's a, a a scary question once you start looking at the answers. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and. I'd just like to to give you the opportunity, Matt, to, to anyone that's listening, I, I'd, I'd love to for you to challenge them on their sustainability, you know, goals, their sustainability future. Is there anything that you would challenge people, you know, listening to this podcast? What would you what would your challenge be? Um, my challenge would be to approach this. Don't assume just because you think it's something we have to do that the world needs it the environment needs it, don't assume that's enough to motivate a lot of the people that need to change what they do. Um, so um, it's self-evident to you and me and to many others what we have to do, but it's not self-evident to everyone. And, um, and that is the ongoing challenge. And the other challenge 
I would say just because we've now got all sorts of accreditation systems and rating schemes and carbon footprints and carbon risk analysis and all these things that we've been wanting to have happen for years, don't assume that they of themselves will bring about any change. Um, you have to look at the human systems behind all of this stuff because that's where the work has to happen in those human systems. So yeah. that's how I'd fin finish up on that. <laughs> Beautiful, Matt. It has actually flown by. Our, our time has, has run up yeah. so quickly. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've educated me. I'm sure you've educated everyone else listening. Um, is there anything that you were, you'd like to, to plug, anything you, that you're doing at the moment that you'd, uh, you'd like to sign off and, and sort of uh, you know, direct people to? Um, uh, look, my website uh, if, is, is a place to start. Um, some of my writing, my PhD thesis around sustainability practice, you can access that from my website at uh, uh, www.parnell.earth. P-A-R-N-E-L-L.Earth. And uh, um, research, through ResearchGate, a lot of my writing is available there. And uh, um, yeah, so that's probably a place to start. But if anyone's interested in talking further with me about uh, this kind of thing, uh, you know, can be nudged through LinkedIn as well. Brilliant. Matt, I, I've got to just chuck it out there. Okay. One of the, one of the coolest website names that you, you've managed to pick up there. Oh, yeah, well, uh, um, when, when they bought in the new uh, uh, website uh, uh, suffixes um, just in the last few months, uh, well, no, last year, I thought, great, I'll, I'll grab one of those. There's there's a lot of really good ones. There's one called Global as well, but I thought Earth Earth sounded more earthy. So Yeah, that, that's perfect. It fits, fits your ethos brilliantly. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. I'm, you know what, I'm definitely going to be... Uh, hitting you up again for another another conversation because I feel yeah. like we've only just touched the tip of the iceberg yeah. on this one. You're always up for it. And thanks for inviting me on, Jacob. And and your initiative of doing these environmental convos is, is fantastic. So more power to you. Well, th thanks, Matt. And, uh, yeah, appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, we'll be in touch soon. Okay, then. Thanks, Jacob. See you.